0: doing the prophet elijah today in one sermon uh, let's pray for god's help as we do it uh, loving <clears throat> him loving heavenly father we thank you that you sent uh, this man elijah to your people israel we pray today that as we hear what he was on about and what he cared about and his ministry that we would uh, be trained to have the same concerns and the same heart that he had for his people in jesus name amen Now, uh, Elijah, we've been doing a a series on one and two kings. Elijah is a really, really famous person in the Bible, a really important person. Um, Here, I think, is the measure of how important he is. Um, There's three times, like, there's a large amount of time in the the history of the Bible, there's three people, three figures at a particular point in time who did heaps and heaps of miracles, and they just stand out among all others, just three people. And what they all have in common as well is that they passed on their power and their ministry to an apprentice. One of them was Jesus. Um, Here are the others. Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Oops, it's gone back. Now, how important is Elijah? He is on a list with Moses and Jesus. (laughs) That's pretty important. If you you know anything about the Bible, that to me just goes, okay, so let's pay attention to this guy. He's really significant. Um, It's also the significance came out in the Bible reading from Mark, didn't it? Jesus has just told his disciples that he is the king who would rule the whole world. They've, called, they've said, you're the Christ, which means king of Israel. You're the one, the son of David, who will rule the whole world. And he baffles his disciples by responding, cool, that's right. Uh, let's go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed there. <laughs> and they all go, that doesn't make sense. And they're really confused. Six days later, Jesus takes up this big mountain, three of them, Peter, James and John. And he says, I've got something to show you. They get to the top of a mountain. Now, mountains are where a lot of really important things have happened in Israel's history. In fact, Moses and Elijah are mountain prophets, you could say, <laughs> like mountain goats, except for pro- it sounds like that, doesn't it? Um, God met Moses and Elijah on Mount Sinai. He met Moses, gave him the law, which is the foundation of Israel's existence, and we'll hear about Elijah on Mount Sinai a little later. But in both cases, they met God in a cloud that had to be shielded from God's dazzling presence. Uh, And they met God in person and talked to him. Now Jesus, they get to the top of this mountain and Jesus becomes a dazzling presence before them. And Moses and Elijah appear and they're not talking to God. They're talking to Elijah. They're talking to Jesus. Jesus, the final word to Israel from God. And a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's a quote from 2 Samuel 7 where David is promised there'd be a king forever to rule the world. This is that king, Jesus. Make sure you listen to him. But again, we've got Moses, Elijah, testifying to Jesus. Uh, Elijah is a really, really big deal in the Bible. Now, here's, here's the main thing I want you to hear about Je- uh, Elijah sorry, today. Um, Elijah was not a failure. He really was. Uh, you read him, I, I'm trying to figure him out, and you, you, you look at his ministry and you go, okay, he was a prophet to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Uh, his prophethood did not bring about the repentance of Israel. It just didn't. It didn't succeed. Israel continued to decline, pretty much as if Elijah never existed. And eventually they were conquered, they were exiled, and they were never restored. And you go, what was the point of that? Why, if there's no lasting value of Elijah's ministry, how is he not just a complete failure? We're going to come back to that question right at the end. But have that gone through your head as we hear about what Elijah did in his, his life and his ministry. Now, um... Are any of you fans of Lord of the Rings? Put your hand up if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings. Cool. And I'm assuming the people who didn't put their hands up are fans, but are too tired to put their hand up. So that's 100% of the people in the room. That, that, that's, that's pretty amazing. It's pretty great, isn't it? Because this segment is actually called um, How J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is Awesome, and will help you understand the Bible too. Just for you, uh, all of you, because you're all into the Lord of the Rings. Um, this is a really good way into what 1 and 2 Kings is on about. Here it is. The world of men, Israel is divided and they're unable to find leadership and unity to do their job of bringing order to Middle Earth. And in their decline, these evil powers and monsters basically are threatening the borders and just going to take everything over, right? Uh, In 1 and 2 Kings, we hear about the monstrous nations, Aram, Assyria, Egypt and so on, that are going to destroy Israel. And Israel keeps looking for help from outside, the very people who are going to kill them, (laughs) just like in Lord of the Rings. So the borders and influence of the old kingdoms diminish. The glorious achievements of the great kings of old are becoming a distant memory. David, Solomon, yep, that's good ancient history. That's just a memory. Just as Solomon's kingdom is split, the kingdoms of Rowan and Gondor don't talk to each other anymore. They don't get on anymore. There's a northern and a southern kingdom, and they don't follow the old ways anymore. They're divided, and as long as they're divided and they don't have the king over them, they're going to fall to their enemies. Now, this is the... uh, uh, northern kingdom of Rohan, Rohan the Roharim are horse people interestingly the king of uh, Israel Ahab is also a horse person he's obsessed with them uh, and only cares about them getting water in famine instead of his people um, but the evil powers have already infiltrated Rohan so you've got Theoden in our story to be King Ahab and you've got Wormtongue in our story you'll hear about Jezebel uh, Theoden has already been conquered because he isn't king Wormtongue is king there's this horrible person next to him that's whispering the lies of the enemy in his ear and is basically ruling a comatose king and just ruling the land. And we'll hear of King Ahab, controlled by his foreign wife, who fills the Israel with the Canaanite fertility god religion, Baal, and kills the true prophets of Israel and replaces them with fake prophets, prophets of Baal. Uh, quickly there's a military leader, Omar, who's Obadiah, who's trying to gather the, the, the faithful to himself, basically, and say the day, uh, in the background, but it's not very successful. Today we'll hear about the prophet Elijah, or Gandalf the Great. Seriously, this is what's in Tolkien's head. The illusions are incredible. Elijah has recently been empowered, as Gandalf had, to confront, uh, I'm going to confuse the names up, Theoden, and fix it. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf? Storm Crow is pretty much lifted from 1 Kings 18. At this point Gandalf is empowered like Elijah was and he confronts him and if only Elijah had it so easy he basically, you know, casts the evil powers out of him and chucks worm tongue out and, and the kingdom's restored and Elijah doesn't have it as easy as that as we'll see. Gandalf later travels to Gondor, i.e. Judah, uh, the, the southern kingdom where the temple of God is or in this case the uh, sacred tree in the courtyard next to the palace of the true king. And there is a great royal throne there but the great royal throne is empty. We are still waiting for the true king. And there's this horrible little pretender next to the throne called Denethor, uh, who seems to be King Herod the Great from the time of Jesus. I could tell you reasons for that. Um, but he's a kingly pretender. He's, he shouldn't be there. He's not the ruler. But he likes to think he is. And the bottom line is the throne is empty. The king hasn't come. Until the king comes, they are going to be subject to their enemies. They're going to lose. So friends, in in conclusion there, you can be a Christian and not like Lord of the Rings. It's just a bit harder. Watch it. It's great. You'll learn the Bible. Here's what we're up to in our series. Uh, This is the kingdom of Israel with the 12 tribes. It was united under King David, the greatest king they've ever had. It's centered on Jerusalem, where the temple is, where God meets his people. But over a couple of sermons, we've heard Stuart teach us how Solomon fell into idolatry and the kingdom split. Now, this kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah in the south. This uh, idiot became king of the north, Jeroam. I call him an idiot because he decided that God really likes cow statues named after him and people should worship those instead. And it's kind of a political move. And he said, hey, let's worship the cow statues and call them uh, Yahweh, the name of God. And this is where the northern kingdom just falls, it just slides into idolatry. They never really recover from it. Now, there's various nations around Israel that feature in one, two kings. Just quickly, we'll see on the screen here, there's Phoenicia up here. We'll hear about Tyre. That's where Jezebel's from. Uh, They worship Baal. Uh, There's Aram. We'll hear about Ben-Hadab and and, and, and the kingdom of uh, Aram. Uh, They're the main ones for today. Um, But there's there's kingdoms all around them that are often fighting or trying to be getting agreements with and so on. just map up a timeline here because this is really it's the the, the teaching of one and two kings is big picture right you read the big scope and you get the ideas over the flow of it okay so we've heard over the course of a couple of sermons that the southern kingdom judah there on the left hand side, white flags means they're um they're, they're following uh, they're in the line of david that's david's kingly line there and the dark backgrounds because they were awful kings rehoboam and abijam they displeased god because they were idolaters and they misled the people On the other side, Jeroboam and Nadab would know worse. They displeased God. We just heard about Jeroboam set up statues. And these guys are in a state of war, so they're just civil war the whole time. Uh, Asa comes to the throne in uh, Judah, and he's a really good king. Um, Basha, in in, uh, judgment um, on Nadab and Jeroboam's house, the the houses are coloured so you can see where they are. Um, uh, Basha kills Nadab, and Basha starts a line, and there's a new dynasty set up in Israel. And they are in a state of war with Asas. Things are still bad, basically. Bashar is no better. Uh, His son, Elah, is even worse. And they fall into idolatry. And then it gets really, really chaotic. Because you hear about Zimri and Tibni and Omri and all these guys are just military guys that think, hey, this kingdom is really bad. We could take over and just lead it. And they try. And Omri eventually comes out on top after a few years. And he sets up a new dynasty over Israel. Now... Omri and his house are really, really important. This is the setting for Elijah. Um, Omri was a really successful king, to a lot of observers. Um, His family established ties with Judah in the place of war and with Phoenicia. Um, He established the city of Samaria here on the map as the capital. Very, very big achievement. Um, However, you never forget whose opinion matters most. Let me tell you God's opinion on King Omri. Uh, Chapter 16 of of 1 Kings, verse 25. Uh, You you can turn there, I'll read it now, though, for the sake of time. It says, But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. Omri's actions... Uh, brought them under the judgment of God. And actually, one of his lesser actions brought about the biggest threat the kingdom of Israel ever faced. Omri's son Ahab, whose dynasty's there, married a lady called Jezebel of Tyre. She's a Baal worshipper. She's a very strong-minded woman. She's a very wicked woman, a real piece of work. Uh, And she basically rules the kingdom under Ahab. He seems pretty gutless beside her. Um, Ahab turns out to be a puppet half the time. So she sets out to kill the prophets of Yahweh so that God's word won't even be known among God's people and replace them with Baal prophets instead. A new religion's taking over and it's called Baal worship. That's when, this period of time, the prophet Elijah turns up and he turns up out of nowhere. There's no introduction, there's no God called Elijah and told him to do this. He just turns up and he turns up in front of King Ahab and, and here's what he says to Ahab He goes, Hey, Ahab, I serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Uh, there will not neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word Ahab, it won't rain until I say it will and he must have looked like a lunatic uh, he's a weird looking guy and he disappeared, he just disappeared and nobody knew where he went, he disappeared out of the wilderness and as the king observed, month after month it didn't rain, there was no dew the kingdom's starting to decline they all look for the prophet and they can't find him now here's the significance, they're all worshipping Baal Baal is the god of fertility and rain And the land is full of the prophets of Baal. Jezebel's made sure of that, and they can't do anything about it. And so everybody's looking for this Elijah guy who's ruining the kingdom. One year, two years, three years. No rain, no Elijah. And there's nothing any of them can do about it. And that's where we come to our first Bible reading. And we're going to have a couple of readings in the sermon here. And Stuart's going to come and read it, read the next thing that happens. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, it's on page 353 of the Church Bibles.
1: So that's 1 Kings chapter 18 and verses 1 to 24. After a long time in the 3rd year the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab and I'll send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria and Ahab had summoned Obadiah his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover. Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Surely, as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth." Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baal's. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who will eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get us two, Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Mount Carmel was on the border of Phoenicia and Israel. Up there, you see on the screen there. Uh, Why is it significant? This is where Baal is most powerful. It's a high place. It's the highest place around. It's on the border of Baal's territory. This is where Baal should be most powerful. It's a really important event because Israel follows Baal, and to all observers, except Obadiah, Elijah seems to be the last prophet of Yahweh. He's the last person that follows that silly ancient religion that Moses taught. Uh, If he dies, that's the end of worship of Yahweh in Israel, surely. At least that's how Elijah sees it. And it isn't a fair fight. I mean, Jezebel's retinue is 450 prophets. Elijah's there on his own. It's not a fair fight at all. I mean, Elijah's God is real. <laughs> and theirs isn't. It doesn't matter how many they've got, does it? And I love his call a spade a spade attitude. Israel, how long are you in a waiver between two opinions? If we always God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. Don't You can't have both ways. Just this no-nonsense approach to religion that I love. Because there really is a God or there really isn't. And it really is the God of the Bible or it really is another God. Choose. You can't have it both ways. The prophets of Baal spend all day yelling for Baal to light their sacrifice. And then they start slashing themselves, trying to get Baal's attention. And Elijah taunts them pretty famously. Shout louder. Maybe Baal's busy or traveling or asleep. And nothing happens, obviously. And they get louder and they start cutting themselves and horrible stuff. Elijah's turn. He prays that Israel today would know their God once again. Have a look at verse... 36, all Elijah wants is for Israel to know their God again. That's the right heart for a prophet. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again instantly fire comes down from heaven and just obliterates the whole altar and everything on it. Israel fall down and worship Yahweh and then they execute the 450 prophets of Baal. We don't know how Ahab responded. King Ahab was there, Elijah tells him, prepare your chariot, now that Baal's prophets are gone, God, not Baal, is going to give rain to Israel. And so if you look at the map there, uh, Elijah took off in his chariot towards Jezreel there, And God actually empowered Elijah to run in front of the chariot the whole way. Imagine the procession you see in Jezreel coming down the mountain. The procession you see isn't the king of Israel in chariot led by the prophets of Baal. The procession you see is the chariot of the king of Israel led by Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh, and behind them are storm clouds. The real God ending the drought. Surely revival's coming. Surely Baal is dead in Israel forever and and revival is coming. Well, you'd think. Uh, Kathy's going to read our our next reading. And you've got to think that would be enough for King Ahab to do something. 1 Kings chapter 19 is what Kathy will be reading, so uh, open that one up.
2: Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, In Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb. The mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, that Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass you by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there... Anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nishmi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahaloah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of God.
0: King Ahab's just seen fire come from heaven from God. Sure, he'd reform Israel, but first he has to check with the misses. He gets home. I'd love to hear this conversation between him and Jezebel. But honey, there really was this massive fireball from heaven and all your prophets couldn't do anything and they killed them. And it was like They weren't real. Like, it doesn't matter. Jezebel just takes over. She uh, sends a message to Elijah and said he would die for this outrage. And then Elijah knew the truth about Israel. He knew that while he'd appeared to win the battle at Carmel, actually Jezebel's made that completely irrelevant. The crown of Israel still follows Baal. Because Jezebel's really in charge and Ahab is too indifferent to do otherwise, even though he saw fire from heaven. Friends, this is just normal, irrational, sinful human behaviour. See fire from heaven and you don't believe? The Lord Jesus said, if they won't believe the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Human beings are capable of making any excuse to do exactly what they want to do. And that's what Ahab did. In 1 Kings 19, we hear the story about how Elijah flees to Mount Horeb. Um, It sounds initially like Jezebel threatens Elijah and so he's scared and upset and he runs off and God comforts him and that's basically what the whole story is about. There's something bigger going on, something very important going on here. Um, It's actually not mainly concerned with uh, Elijah's feelings at all. What it's about is Elijah bringing an accusation. To God about Israel. It's his job as a prophet. Now, have a look at chapter 19, verse 2. There's some ambiguity here that I'll just point out to you. Uh, Verse 2 Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. He's going to, you know, I'm going to kill you. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. If you see your footnote, it says, Or Elijah saw and ran for his life. Let the Hebrew boffins, what whatever the word is, get that one out. Um, there's two ways of understanding it. Elijah's afraid of dying and so he runs off or, this is what I think, uh, Elijah saw that his work was going to be for nothing. Perhaps he feared that him dying at the hand of Jezebel would be the end of the true worship of God in Israel forever. It would be game over. You See, Elijah isn't afraid to die. You read verse 4 and the first thing he says when he gets to the wilderness is, I've failed, kill me now please God. He's not afraid to die. Elijah is terrified that Israel will never repent. He's got a heart for Israel to repent. Israel, Israel's moment for repentance is past and it's gone very, very badly. And Elijah doesn't know what to do except get away from Jezebel so she doesn't win. So he flees down to Beersheba there in the south. It's about as far south as you can go in Judah before you get to the wilderness. He leaves his servant there and goes a day further. An angel of the Lord comes and feeds him and says, The journey's too much for you. What journey? What journey needs supernatural assistance? Not going back into Israel. Going down into the wilderness needs supernatural assistance. Uh, here's his journey. He travels down through the wilderness, 40 days and 49s, to Mount Horeb. Uh, you might know it as Mount Sinai. It's a very significant place in Israel's history. And he goes up and he stays in, not a cave, the cave. Very important. Um, Mount uh, It's it's a place where Israel became a nation, it's a place where God met Moses, it's a place where the constitution of Israel was written, and God became their God. It stands for all that Israel's rejected, right? That's where Elijah's turned up at, it seems, led by God. Um, to understand what happens in this incident, you actually have to remember what happened 600 years earlier with Moses. Now, we did Exodus last year, so that helps me a lot because I can just throw some stuff up on the screen for that. Um, here's what happened when Moses and Israel arrived. In Exodus 19, God met, God, uh, God met them at Sinai and he revealed his presence to them by covering the mountain in thunder, lightning, fire and smoke and the whole place trembled like an earthquake. Does that sound familiar from Elijah? Yep. God spoke the Ten Commandments to them and other case laws. That's chapters 20 through 23, basically. He told them the law, um, essentially. There was a ceremony to mark them now in a covenant agreement. The Constitution of Israel is written. God is our God. We'll follow him and and, and so on. And and we're his people. That's our identity. Moses goes up for 40 years and 40 nights onto Mount Sinai to get instructions for how to do the tabernacle. And when he comes down, he does not find faithful Israel waiting for him. He finds them bowing before idols. The covenant is broken before it's really completed. God is furious and Moses intercedes between God and the people. Here's some of the lines that come out of uh, like, uh, Exodus 32 and 3. God says, Moses, you're the only faithful Israelite left, so I'll make a nation out of you. Moses begs for God's forgiveness. God will restore Israel, he says, but first there will be judgment and then there will be grace. Uh, 3,000 Israelites are killed in judgment. Then Moses uh, meets God. His presence passes by. Uh, Moses was hidden in a cleft in the rock or a cave while God's presence went past. And then Moses comes down the mountain uh, with the relationship restored with Israel. There's judgment and then there's grace and restoration of God's people. Now, Elijah's reacting that, basically. Uh, That's how you're supposed to understand it. Listen to what happened to Elijah. You read the whole chapter very differently when you get it. So Elijah enters the cave. He's in the same place uh, Moses hid from God's presence going past him. At least that, that, that's, how, that's how it's presented. God addresses him, why? Hear Elijah. Elijah takes on the role of a prophet lawyer. He brings charges against Israel. He's very angry with Israel, I, th- I suspect. He replies, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. That Israelites have rejected your government, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. They've done a Moses thing. They've done a golden calf again. And I'm the only one left. God draws near uh, much like at Sinai with the fire and the earthquake and all that sort of thing. And then he says again, Elijah, what are you here for? Court is now in session. It's a law court. Elijah is bringing charges uh, against Israel to God officially. And like at Sinai, God declares judgment on Israel and then extends forgiveness and grace that they don't deserve. Uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 15. Here's the judgment and the grace. Judgment first. Judgment first. The Lord said to him, doesn't sound like judgment, go back to the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, he's going to anoint three people. Anoint King Hazael, uh, king of, over Aram, he's not king yet. Also anoint Jehu, king of, uh, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. He's not king of Israel, Ahab is. And anoint Elisha, son of uh, Shephat from Abel, uh, to succeed you as prophet. So there's three appointments there and they're all appointments of judgment. You actually have to see the big picture to know how it plays out because it doesn't happen for another 15 chapters. We'll get, we'll get there in a, a short while. But there's grace. The last verse there. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whom knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Friends, uh, you might have heard of the idea of predestination and God choosing people for salvation. It's true, he does. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody would be saved. And it's actually the basis for a lot of comfort because it means salvation is based on God's power. It means no matter how bad the world gets, God's people will be saved. Elijah, you think all is lost? You think you're the last one? Forget it. I've chosen people out of Israel and I will see them through to my kingdom. It's really comforting teaching. I mean, it means that no matter how successful a Jezebel you have, killing everybody, God will preserve his church. Jesus' church won't lose. God's preserving a people for himself. This is um, Romans, uh, sorry, the map there is uh, King Hazael is from up here. Aram, that's all I wanted to point out. Um, Romans chapter 11 says this. Listen to how he applies this incident incident from Elijah. It says, did God reject his people? By no means. This is Paul talking. He says, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham and from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. For is the application, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It doesn't matter how bad history gets. Jesus' church will not lose. Now, We'll just trace that, um, that picture out. Elijah straight away appoints Elisha. He's, uh, his apprentice who gets his power, basically, and, and, and follows along. Now, if you read the rest of One Kings sometime, basically what it's about is it's showing how Ahab had lots of opportunities to repent. He didn't take it. Uh, he was shown a lot of grace, but he and Jezebel do worse and worse, and Baalism just gets worse. In fact, Baalism spreads. Here's what happens In Judah, another good king comes with the best name in the world, man. If we have another boy, his name's Jehoshaphat. Um, clearly that's a good name for a kid today uh, he was a really good king however he made friends with Ahab and this meant the cancer of uh, Baal worship could spread into Judah the southern kingdom as well Ahab dies in battle his son takes over he's no better he disobeyed God as well Jezebel's influence is still there um, and then Joram after him uh, there's judgment on this house and it's going to end with this generation but that's all that Elijah sees happen He doesn't see anything happen after that. It's like the ministry's failed. It hasn't achieved what it should have. Israel is still not following God. There's a famous thing in 2 Kings chapter 2, how Elijah, uh, he doesn't die, how he gets taken to heaven. I'm not going to talk about it because it's a whole sermon in itself. It's extraordinary and unique. But here's what happened. He's walking with Elisha, and uh, they cross the Jordan River, Moses style, if you understand what I mean. Uh, And as they're walking along, chapter 2, verse 11... And talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elijah's gone from history. (laughs) Extraordinary. It doesn't happen to too many people uh, that they disappear without dying. But Elijah has a very special place in God's plans. And now Elisha takes over uh, Elijah's ministry. And Stuart will tell us more about that next week. But before we end, what I want you to show, because it's the whole point, is I want to show you how the judgment God gave Elijah at Sinai played out. He was supposed to anoint three people. Elisha's been anointed, he'll continue the work. Okay, two kings. Jehu, (laughs) king of Israel, and Hazael, king of Aram. He's leading up to them. Uh, um, Jehoram was a bad king. His father was Jehoshaphat, but he uh, failed to follow um, the ways of God because he married Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, and she is very much her mother. She is a splitting image of her, her mother and now bar worship is in Israel as well. Uh, friends, sin and idolatry are like cancer. You've just got to see that when you read these bits of the Bible. It's like cancer. Don't underestimate it. Uh, the, the, where are we up to? Good. <laughs> Does that say... My eyesight's going... Ahaziah, Good, good. We're up to the point. Ahaziah and Joram. Ahaziah also not following God, following Baal instead. They're all influenced by the house of Ahab and Jezebel. And Athaliah there is basically running the show over in Judah. And, of course, they're friends. Ahaziah and Joram end up meeting up and becoming good friends. And everybody's following Baal. Now, here's what happens. The play comes in. Um, Elisha anoints Jehu king of Israel. Listen to the type of guy Jehu is. In chapter 9 of Two Kings, Jehu Uh, is not a very nice man but he's the instrument God uses to achieve his judgment on Israel on Baal worship particularly verse 22 of chapter 9 says when Joram saw Jehu he asked him hey have you come in peace Jehu how can there be peace Jehu replied as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound he's not happy if you go through chapter 9 of two kings Jehu kills Joram and Ahaziah kings of Israel and Judah on the same day then he kills Jezebel, then he kills off Ahab's descendants, then he kills down all the prophets of Baal, and then you get to chapter 10, verse 28. He's very effective. 10:28, so Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. That's the guy Elijah, Elisha through Elijah, appointed to get rid of Baal out of Israel. And it worked. It was very, very successful. But Jehu didn't follow God's ways either. He was just as sinful. We don't have the Baal worship anymore, but he reverted back to the same thing Jeroboam did. He followed those cow statues and the situation hasn't actually improved. Baal's gone, but adultery is not. Then's the second part of the judgment. In 2 Kings chapter 8, he appoints this guy, Hazael, king of Aram. Why does he anoint him? Well, he starts lowering the borders of Israel. He starts attacking Israel. When you come to um, chapter 10, verses 20... Beg your pardon... I'll tell you about Hazael, chapter 10, verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Their borders are collapsing on them. Hazael overpowered the Israelites throughout their territory. There's the second person that was appointed to bring judgment on Israel. This is God's response to the charges. Elisha will continue the ministry and Israel won't repent. Well, Baal will be destroyed through Jehu and Hazael will bring judgment and close the borders down and, and bring decline to Israel because they won't repent and follow God we still got this horrible woman, Athaliah, over on the, uh, the left-hand side in Judah. And Baal uh, continues there. Um, when Ahaziah dead, Athaliah just grabbed the crown for herself. Um, if you've been following with us, you'll know that God promised an eternal line to David. Uh, it failed. Athaliah killed them all. That's what she did. She killed all the descendants of David. So she ruled Judah for six, six years. And you think the promises of God are over forever. And she wakes up one day to find that a baby in David's family line had been saved and raised in secret for six years and a seven-year-old has just been crowned king of Judah. She's put to death and Baal's staff is removed from Israel and Joash uh, brings somewhat reform and revival to Israel. Now, the point is, God has preserved. He's preserved his ruler. He won't fail. He's preserved his ruler. He's preserved his people. God's preserving no matter how bad it gets. Now, here's the two lessons I want us to get out of today. Two points. Friends, sin and idolatry are really, really, really contagious. Don't underestimate it. When you see sin and idolatry, don't think it will be harmless. If there's anything we've seen today, it is that idolatry and sin play out in ways you can't imagine and ruin lives. When one generation's led astray, the grandchildren don't know God at all, let alone a half version of it. And it's just natural gravity away from God towards sin Sin and idolatry spread like cancer. Second thing I want you to know is, have confidence that God will save a remnant no matter what. Friends, when you hear about ISIS tearing apart the church in the Middle East, do you think they will be able to make Christianity extinct in that part of the world? No matter what the news says, I don't think so because God will preserve his remnant. When you read about the Middle Ages where the official theology of the church contradicted the Bible on basic things like you can trust Jesus and be saved, do you really think nobody was saved in that era? The preaching of the gospel happened. There were true prophets. God reserved the people for himself. They may not appear on history's page, but God is preserving his church through every age. Elijah's problem, just because he couldn't see any faithful Israelites, he assumed there weren't any. That's not the case. God is doing bigger things than we can see. Now, I want you to know, because at some point in the future, regulars, you may look at our church and think, God doesn't seem to be achieving much among us. We aren't seeing people that turn to Jesus in Oran Park. And part of your theology, part of the thing that in your brain needs to be, God will preserve his people. Jesus said, I will build my church and hell and death will not overcome it. So Elijah didn't fail at all. He just didn't see the success, <laughs> small and humble as it was have confidence in God. Let's, uh, let's pray and thank God for his uh, power and mercy. Loving Heavenly Father, we, uh, as we struggle to get our head through the kings and how, how your prophecy through uh, Elijah played out, um, we, we thank you for the picture that we get that even though sin and idolatry is so very contagious and, and awful, you'll win. <laughs> And uh, even when it looks like you've lost, there's people that you've reserved that we don't know and are reading their Bibles and trusting the Lord Jesus all over the world and in every age. Thank you, that you're the God who brings salvation and wins salvation and ensures salvation. Um, we want to pray, Father, that uh, we would see more outward success than Elijah did. We pray that as we tell people about Jesus and speak clearly about him, we would see people immediately uh, leaping to the opportunity. And becoming Christians but we also want to pray that we would have great confidence in you when that just doesn't appear to be the case and we thank you for preserving the line of your kings so that the Lord Jesus could be born and that we could be saved. Amen.